Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about politics. It's the all-consuming obsession of our times, an era where the idea that everything is political is taken for granted. But what happens when our sense of political identity is stronger than our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ? By the way, this is our 40th episode of The Commentary. It's hard to believe we've been having these conversations week in and week out for so long. Thanks for joining us. We hope this particular conversation will be a helpful one. Our brief on the commentary is to talk about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. And sometimes our focus is very tight on things that are going on in our community. And sometimes it's a little broader on things that are relevant to our community or things that people in our community are talking about. And for this episode, we have one of the, the broader topics. We're actually revisiting a topic that we talked about back in May, which has to do with politics. In May, we talked about grace and whether or not, as a church, we are too conservative or not conservative enough. But this question of the church's relationship to politics, whether progressive politics or populist or conservative politics, that keeps coming up and, and reading a lot about things like that in the news today. And so I have inflicted an article on Cameron from The Atlantic, and this is by Peter, I think it's pronounced Wenner, but I'm not positive. Um, but Peter Wenner, hopefully I'm getting that right, wrote an article called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And what I appreciated about the article was I felt like he gives a survey that summarizes a lot of different conversations that I've had over the last year or year and a half with members of our church, with pastors of other churches, people in the community who are all trying to figure out like what's going on with evangelical churches and what's going on with uh, politics in the church. And so I've spoken to people who were concerned that the pastors of their churches were not being political enough. I've had people worry that I wasn't being political enough. But at the same time, I've talked to pastors who've been concerned that people in their congregations were putting their politics ahead of their faith. And so I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. We're not going to do a close reading of it or anything, but we might refer to this occasionally. And I would you know, suggest it as, as a good thing to kind of catch up on, on the details of this conversation. As with any survey, there were parts of this that I think are really good and really dead on. There are other parts of it that I'm like, eh, I probably would explain these things a little bit differently, but I think it, it does a good job of giving you an overview of the conversation about, let's say, faith and politics in this pandemic era. So with that in mind, Cameron, you probably remember back in May, we had a conversation about this. Oh, yeah. The focus then really had more to do with just our church in mm -hmm. general. And if people haven't listened to that recently, it is worth going back and, 
just checking that out because one of the things that we have really tried to do is create a community where people, regardless of their their politics, will be able to hear the challenge of scripture and the challenge of the gospel. And and I always say if if you are if you can live with the idea that Jesus is going to challenge your politics, whatever they are, then this community is a community where, where you can really find a home. You, it won't always be comfortable, but, but you will be with other people who are similarly committed to putting Jesus first. But if your politics have to come first, then it's going to be tough to uh, coexist in a community that's really committed to, to getting things the other way around. Yeah, and I so I think what you're just identifying there is is really the crux of his whole essay in a sense. What he's saying is the reason that the evangelical church is breaking apart, like his his title suggests, is that so many within that church have placed their politics above their religion. Or he, he puts it one way, they've their religion has become politicized, kind of a thing. And so, like you said, we're not talking about grace specifically anymore. We're kind of talking about the evangelical church more broadly. But it, as I was reading through this, I kind of got thinking then, like, so what? what is he talking about? Who is he talking about exactly? And maybe we could discuss that first a little bit. Who do you think he has in mind when he's talking about the evangelical church in America? No, that's a great question. Um, because, of course, evangelical is a word that we use now to mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are watching, you know, news coverage, which, as you know, I don't do very much of since I gave it up for Lent and never went back. But if you do watch that, whenever newscasters talk about evangelicals, they seem to be talking about kind of white middle class people who voted for Donald Trump. And that's their idea of what what evangelical identity mm-hmm is all about. But historically in the church, the word evangelical meant something different. Uh, Evangelicals were people who believed in the gospel. So evangelicals were were people who were committed to the teaching of scripture and also committed to sharing the good news of the gospel with others. And, And if you believed in those things, then you were an evangelical of of some kind. And so during the Reformation, all of the the various branches of the Reformed and Reforming Church were small evangelical churches in the sense Uh that they were recovering the gospel. But we've now come to use that term in a much narrower kind of way. And so as Reformed Christians, as Presbyterians, I find myself oftentimes talking about the evangelicals, but, but I don't mean us, I mean them. Uh-huh. Because I'm talking about evangelical as, let's say, a culture, yeah. not as a creed. So when you think of the evangelical church today, I guess what I have in my head is, let's say, like the lowest common denominator, sort of broad, um, conservative Christian outlook that you see in, let's say, like the stereotypical megachurch, right, where people tend to be culturally and theologically conservative to the extent that they're kind of into theology and that sort of thing. But their practices are not necessarily like historic Christian practices when it comes to worship and things like that, ecclesiology, the way the church is organized. um, They do tend to be kind of very 21st century, Mm -hmm. but in core beliefs, certainly like in, in 
you know, their Trinitarianism, their belief about the gospel and things like that, we are standing in the same territory. So we as Presbyterians probably, you know, we have like one foot in and one foot out of the evangelical world. And we're in it when it comes to the, the gospel orientation and, and we're not in it so much when it comes to the culture and the cultural assumptions that, that go along with it. Okay. So yeah, so that's, that's a good history, kind of a high overview of what evangelicalism is now. Because I, as I was reading through it, I did feel like he's talking about somebody else that's not me, like you were, you were saying. And right. So I had, you know, I was thinking about the other denominations. Well, that's or, good, though. Oops. That's good, because that's <laughs> the thing I always worry about. Like, if, if people from Grace read an article like this, do they think, yeah, that's what I'm experiencing at my right. church? Or do they yeah. think, wow, no, that's not what it's like. And I hope yeah. it's the latter. Yeah. But uh, you never know. Right? <laughs> you never. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to think about that. One thing I wanted to talk about within the essay was the way he's suggesting the evangelical church has been formed such that their politics has become superior to their religion, because that's a big topic in and of itself. And you've just identified that this group of Christians, they're, they're identified almost as much by their culture, if not more by the culture than by their theology. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about how he's suggesting this this process has gone about and how it's gone from a, a, a strong creed about the gospel to a group of people that are, as you've described them. Yeah, so I think sometimes it's, it's easier to see how these dynamics work when you're looking at some other group, not at yourself, yeah. right? We're never conscious of our own blind spots. And so this doesn't come from the essay, but this is kind of, you know, my two cents and, and kind of an analyzing this stuff. But I think a lot of what you're seeing happening in uh, culturally conservative churches is something that we saw happen earlier in mainline, quote unquote, liberal churches, right? So there was a transformation where these churches, which were theologically big tents, where in theory you could believe a lot of different things and still be acceptable, there was a kind of narrowing when it came not to theology, but to politics, right? So your political views needed to be more consistently progressive than in the past, I think, would have been necessary. And, and you can see, again, like I say, it's easier to look across the fence. And, and I can see, you know, friends of mine, people I respect who are in that world, who over the course of time have gone from from having views that were all over the map to having like a very narrow set of of proper beliefs about the issues politically that people like us care about, right? So you can see that happening over there. And I think what you're seeing now is on the conservative end of the spectrum, we're catching up, right? Because What's taking place is not a shift in theology. What's taking place is, let's say, like an imposition of a political orthodoxy. Another way to talk about it would be, we talk about how important it is for Christians. If they're going to be faithful Christians, if you're going to believe what the Bible believes and practice it, you need to have what we call a thick confessional identity. Like you need to be deeply rooted in the scriptures, what they teach in a confession of faith, 
that is outside of your culture and outside of your time to kind of anchor you in those truths, a thick confessional identity. In evangelicalism, we've been thinning that confessional identity over the course of generations. We've been narrowing Christianity down to the essentials. And the essentials, the list of things that are essential to Christianity, that keeps getting smaller. And at the same time, you know, you're creating that, that void, like the stuff that, that are secondary issues that we can agree to disagree over, whatever it is in scripture that turns out not to be that important any longer. But as you create that void, something is going to fill it. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a generation of people who have thin confessional identities, but thick political identities, because in our culture, political identity is what matters. Mm -hmm. And people strongly lean into their political identities in a way that that would be strange to us to think anyone would take theology seriously in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's what we're seeing is that a lot of people who regard themselves as Christian, the thickness of that identity is not so much grounded in any sort of traditional understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's grounded in a politics that thinks of itself as Christian, regardless of whether it corresponds to the teachings of Christ. Yeah. I, I think that's a helpful analysis. One interesting thing though is, so you, you're contrasting the mainline to not mainline churches and the, the evangelical, but the, the mainline churches did have a thick theological, um, what did you, what was the term you used? Identity. Identity. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, they've got the creeds, they've got the traditions and, and yet there still came this point where they, they started kind of moving more in that political direction for whatever reasons. Right. We're kind of saying that something similar with the evangelical church is happening has been happening, but they didn't seem to have that same kind of deep theological identity. Well, and I think, yeah, so there is a difference yeah. and, and it's a difference. Um, I'm going to be history nerd right now, but, but if, if you study, you know, when different countries had their revolutions you think about the English Civil War in the 1600s, and they get a constitutional monarchy eventually out of all of this. And they get it while, you know, a country like Russia is still basically a divine rights medieval monarchy well into the 20th century. But when Russia catches up, their revolution is much worse, right? It's much more thoroughgoing. I think in a way, evangelicals, conservatives, have looked at what's happening in mainline churches and felt like that could never happen here. You know, we would never put our politics ahead of the gospel in this way. We would never ignore what the Bible teaches just because it's not politically in line with what good people like us believe. But what has happened now suddenly is a similar kind of revolution, but at a much more breakneck pace. And I think the, the people who've been most astonished by this have been the pastors, you know, and there many pastors are quoted in this essay. And I, I know from conversations I've had that, that pastors have been surprised to realize that, that people who paid lip service to their commitment to the Bible, to Christ, to the church, to the elders who they had taken holy vows to submit to all of those things that none of that mattered when somebody's political influencer decided your elders are wrong and I'm right. And then suddenly everyone's going in lockstep with their political 
influencers. But again, because their, their identity wasn't confessional, it was political, just the politics called itself Christian. Yeah, as I listen to you and I'm a little scared, you know, like, wow, it seems like this, this could be so easy for your politics to take hold and become, become your central identity, which, which actually gets to something that he, he mentioned in the article, which was like the way that culture, politics, media have a way of catechizing Christians, right. you know, in a, in a way that is antithetical to, to the gospel and that this is seemed to happen within the evangelical church where whether it's watching the news or listening to your own podcast or, or <laughs> listening to podcasts, here we are, um, or reading blogs, you know, we've got all, all these kind of different sources of information now, which have shaped us, whether or not we realized it into people that identify first and foremost as whatever, you know, whatever your political party is, or, or you're an American first, um, yeah, Alan Jacobs in the mm-hmm. essay encapsulates that in, in that phrase, culture catechizes. Yeah. You know, we're not conscious of this, but but all the media that we consume has a catechizing aspect to it. It's it's forming us, it's shaping us. There's a uh, to borrow uh, Jamie Smith's term, there's a cultural liturgy mm-hmm. that is being enacted and we have entered into it by choosing to submit ourselves to these these cultural liturgies through the shows we watch and the books we read and increasingly the podcasts we listen to and, and whatever influencers we follow, right? We're being catechized by them so that even the most diligent church has a hard time competing, right? Because you've got, you know, a sermon, which is... Uh, you know, half an hour of time, you've got a worship service that that sermon takes place in. You have, you know, whatever additional uh, small groups or Sunday schools are taking place. But, you know, it's true in every church that, that only a fraction of the people who attend a worship service are involved in those other activities. And so the amount of time that we devote to our Christian formation is much less than what we devote to, let's say, our political formation, especially now that that politics has come to sort of consume everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it sh- should be a little bit frightening. Like, it <laughs> should make us wonder, like, what what are the ways that I am swimming with the stream mm-hmm. of the culture, even though I'm congratulating myself on being such an outlier and such an independent thinker, uh, am I really standing out the way that I think I am. Well, can we talk about that a little bit? You know, cause I'm, I'm curious, Absolutely. you know, what are, what are some, maybe, maybe two questions. One would be like, what are the signs that, that my political allegiances are, are becoming idols basically? And let's start there, you know, because my, so my thoughts would be like, like I can't coexist with Christians who believe other, otherwise, you know? So if I'm, if I'm around people, whether in my church or somewhere else, Christians who, who believe some political view different from me, I'm going to feel maybe threatened or like, right. I just can't associate with you anymore. I can't stand you. It should always be a red flag when you feel like you have more sympathy and more in common with people who reject your faith in Christ than you do with people who are united to you in Christ. Mm. 
So whenever you find yourself frustrated or at odds with Christ's people, that should give you pause, right? Now, I'm not saying it's, it's not possible like for, for you to be in like the minority and for most of the people in a church to get something wrong or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But when you find yourself constantly finding your sort of allies outside the community of faith, then it should at least lead you to ask, like, how did I get here? Like, check those underlying assumptions. It's absolutely possible that you're right and everybody else is wrong. But it's a good indicator that, that maybe that's not what's going on. A, a, another one related to that would be when you find yourself out of accord with the teaching of the church, right? So whenever it's you versus the elders, you know, and, and they're wrong and you're right, that's a good time to kind of ask yourself, am I sure about this? You know, it's, it's striking to me that when we think of the greatest hero of the faith in the Gospels, the person that Christ points out as possessing a faith unlike anybody else in Israel, it's that Roman centurion whose whole understanding of faith has to do with being under authority. And we, understandably, in the 21st century, are really suspicious of authority. You know, we, we think of being anti-authoritarian as, as a, like a fundamentally good thing. And yet, in Scripture, authority is seen as good. In Presbyterianism, authority is seen as good, just like government is seen as good. And we're aware of the potential for corruption, obviously, because of the corruption of all human beings. But government and authority are gifts from God, and, and when properly used, are beneficial to us. So if I find myself struggling against those authorities, then I should at least question whether it's true that that the elders in my church are all wrong about this thing that my news pundits are all right about. Yeah, that's that's an interesting example of how like a, an essential American belief, which is, I would say, some kind of anti-authoritarianism can shape us. And, you know, whether or not we realize it in such a way that we start to interact with our own religious communities and we're, we're not maybe even realizing it, but it's, it's this kind of anti, anti-authority. Um, he mentioned Tim Keller in the article talking about anti-institution um, tendencies among evangelicals. But, you know, it's, it's just an interesting example of how the culture shapes you and then suddenly you're up against your own church body. Right. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point that when he talked to Keller, Keller talked about the, the, the sense in which for people who are anti-authority and, and anti-institutional, there's a resistance to allowing the church to shape and form them. Yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of people who are in that boat congratulate themselves and think no one is shaping and forming them. When the reality is that the church's power in this culture is is resistible, right? Like the, the church's ability to, to shape and form you is very limited compared to the ability of these much larger you know, content creators in your life. And so in a sense, you're congratulating yourself that you resisted sort of the weak attempt to shape you while succumbing to the much stronger one. You know, we talk about the church's authority, and I, I think maybe when we hear that, we think first off of like preachers and the word, and, right? But there's 
There's another sense in which the the church's authority to shape us comes through its people. And you you were talking about just the sheer contrast in time that we spend on a Sunday morning and the rest of our week. And, and I think there's something to be said for like, you know, asking ourselves, how, how much time am I spending with the body of Christ throughout my week? And that's something that I've had to ask myself over the years as I start to rethink what church means, you know, rather than just a Sunday morning, the church being the body of Christ that lives all week long and just, you know, maybe it's submitting yourself to the the friendship of others, you know, or maybe it's um, helping somebody out. I could see that being kind of a, a way to think about a counter formation, you know, just spending more time with the body of, of believers. I think that's a good point because there is no such thing as church without community. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, in the 21st century, a lot of people think about Christianity as a philosophy or a belief system. And the idea of like going to church is optional. Like I believe in Christianity and maybe I'll go to church. And if I go to church, maybe if it fits my schedule, I'll also do some of the other activities and that sort of thing. But it's all approached through the lens of like the consumer, right? The stuff that works for me and the stuff that appeals to me, I'll do that stuff. But I don't think from a New Testament standpoint, that way of thinking really holds much water because Christ creates a community, a body, and those people are meant to live in community together. Now, what community looks like in the 21st century is going to be different from what it looks like in the first century, but it still has to be recognizably community. Like we still have to be in one another's lives. We still have to be, you know, actively seeking to shape ourselves according to the cross. And so if we're not doing that, then we are neglecting a calling that as Christians we have. And so I think what you're saying is true that, and I think it, it also connects to the political question in the sense that it's much easier to demonize people who disagree with you when you're not in relationship with them. Right. You know, that the people that are in my life, the people who are in our church, whose politics is different from mine, who vote differently than I do, I don't get to hate them. I actually have to love them because I've been called to do that. And being called into a community where you must accept and overlook and forgive and bear with those differences when you actually have to bear the burdens of people whose politics you don't agree with, that's sanctifying. And people who have been in that kind of community, I think, have been the people who have endured these stresses the best. Whereas if your community is one that you've only opted into, if you enter community the way that you, you know, buy products from brands that you identify with, then it's really easy to cut those ties. You know, and as a church, we've seen this you know, for people whose, whose like connection to our community was essentially consumeristic. Like I, I like it. It appeals to me. It meets my needs, whatever. Mm-hmm. Those are easy ties to cut. But for people who are actually bonded to us in relationship, uh, they've traveled with us despite not always agreeing and uh, maybe never agreeing with what we're doing. And I think that's what's telling. So in the essay, there's there's a quote that just jumps out at you from 
uh, a fellow Presbyterian pastor who says that there's a lot of people who have left their churches over politics, but can't think of anybody who's changed their politics because it conflicted with the church, Mm. which I think is a little hyperbolic. Like I can think of people, you know, that we know whose politics have been modified or chastened or softened by the fact that their church put them in community with people who saw things differently. And I think that's exactly what a Christian community should do. And, and the reason it does that isn't, isn't in some sort of Pollyanna-ish, can't we all get along and agree to disagree way, but what those kinds of differences do is they prioritize Christ. Because I don't stop believing that my politics are right, and I don't stop believing that, that what I believe politically is very important and what you believe politically is detrimental. And yet, having to live in community with you and love you and respect you despite these differences, I can only do that by reorienting our relationship where Christ is first. Right? Where I see him, and I see you, and I see you accepted in him, and that trumps the fact that you're wrong on on all political and cultural matters, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's the point of it. The the point of Christian community and having to live with difference is not just uh, like mere tolerance, but it is that that like intentional forbearance is one of the ways that the cross comes front and center. Yeah, I I think that's really helpful, and I'm. I'm trying to think of how people might respond to this conversation right now, because I know so many people who, who have been galvanized over the last year, you know, to, to become more political and and what would they say? And, you know, here's maybe one possible thought is, well, is, is this just come some kind of like middle, middle of the road again? You know, we talked about this, I think back in May, but is what you're advocating just to sort of, well, you're not going to be extreme left. You're not going to be extreme right. You're going to be kind of in the middle and you're all going to get together. Like, um, third wayism is a, is a phrase. Right. I don't know if you've heard this, you know, sure. that people have been criticizing um, people within actually certain denominations of, of kind of this like moderate middle view. Are you saying like your, your, your politics are obviously subordinate to your religion, but what's going on there? No. So I, I'm not advocating for political centrism, right? right? So what I'm suggesting is not that we all need to move to the political center so that mm-hmm. we can kind of get along. What I'm saying is a subordination of politics, wherever you may fall on that spectrum, a subordination of those politics to Christ above all, to Christ's church and to Christ's people. So that it's, it's, not, it's not a question of, of what politics you hold or should hold. I can't tell you that. Like I have my own views. I think they're right. I think I'm the rightest of, of anyone, and mm-hmm. I'm constantly amazed by people who, who you know, understand so much less than I do, but, right. but think that they're the ones who have political right. conviction. Whatever. We all feel that way. In our culture, politics has been centered in such a way that it seems like it is the most important thing. And anyone who tells you that it should not rule and reign in your life is, is some sort of milk toast 
middle of the road, whatever. But what I'm saying to you is something else should rule and reign and that your politics should be downstream of that. So I don't care what they are. I don't care if you're a centrist of the most centrist kind, if you are, you know, ultra conservative, if you're a neoconservative, progressive, liberal, whatever kind of liberal you are, like all of those things, fine. But the cross needs to be so much higher than those things. Politics should be so far down that sort of tree of hierarchy, right? Because honestly, politics is, you know, the art of the possible, right? Politics is, is largely ineffectual. We put so much passion into these political projects that, that have yet to solve the fundamental problems of, of human society. And, and as Christians, we believe there are much greater solutions to a lot of those issues. So again, I'm not trying to prescribe anybody's politics or say, you know, what, what's acceptable, what's biblical politics and what's not. What I'm saying is politics itself as a thing can't be at the center. And that's what we're trying to do. I think whether you're on the left or the right, if politics has become the center of what's important to you, but you are a believer, the natural thing to do is to fuse some of that belief onto that politics, right? To, to, to baptize it, to christen it so that you can feel like the cross is still at the center. Right. What I'm saying is that's not what it looks like for the cross, for the gospel to be at the center, right? You can't have a christened politics at the center of your life and still be pursuing uh, Christ as, as you should, so there's a place for politics. It's great. There's a place for politics that's that's exactly opposite to the politics that I subscribe to. The place of the cross is much higher than that. It yeah. needs to be. And when you see that, when you recognize that, I think it makes it easier to be in community with people who don't have the same politics. You know, not because you dismiss those differences, but because you put them in their proper context. Yeah. That's, that's helpful. It makes me think of St. Augustine's City of God, actually, which is this big kind of you know, political theology of sorts. And at one point in there, he says that politics is really about loves. or Really, this whole conversation is about love, rank, rank ordering your loves. And like you just said, what distinguishes the City of God which maybe you could say the church. I know, I know there's debates about this, but the you know the city of God and the city of man is their their loves. You know what what is the ultimate love? And I think for the city of man in, in that book, it's you know it's it's the state, it's power, it's fame, it's all of these human ambitions, the the stuff of the possible that becomes the that's the number one love. And in the city of God, the number one love is Christ. It's God. It is God and neighbor. And yeah, I think, I think he was right way back then. And we're just trying to get to that point again, where we're saying, look, it's not that politics doesn't matter. It's that it's completely relativized and put in its place underneath the, the love of God and the love of Christ. Yeah. Let me give you an analogy uh, to try to understand what I'm getting at here. Um, anybody who has been involved in the humanities or the arts can appreciate the fact that over time, those disciplines have centered politics in a big way. So this was happening when I was in grad school back in the 90s, but now has has sort of come much fuller. So 
it's very natural and ordinary whenever you're reading like artists' manifestos or statements on why work was done or explanations or whatever, what the themes of work are, to find that, that they're not transgressive, that they're not pushing against any sort of cultural norms, that they're pretty conventionally progressive. Like, like whatever people and sort of the polite left believe is the right thing to think about this stuff, that's what our art advocates for. That's what our film advocates for, painting, music, anything. And in the discourse that surrounds the humanities and the arts, everyone talks in that very uh, controlled way about all of it. So you're never talking about like the meaning of something as if it could somehow transcend the politics, because the idea that you can transcend politics is anathema. That may sound great and normal if you just got into this stuff, but if, if you had experienced the humanities and the art and the idea of beauty before all of this happens, you would find this very limiting and impoverishing. You would find that it was sad in a way that all of this complexity and all of this diversity and all of this beauty had been reduced to these really predictable maxims. Um, that diminishment is a natural result of the assumption that the most important thing about a work of art is its politics mm -hmm. and getting the politics right. And if you can understand that in the world of art, you can apply that to just about anything else. Right? Theology, for example. When I think about theology at its best, I think of something very much like art that that draws back a curtain that gives you a glimpse of something transcendent. If all theology is made to fit a sort of political litmus test, if it turns out no matter how much exploration we do, we have to arrive at the same simple prescribed answers every time. There's something really impoverishing about that. And I don't want that to happen in the church. I don't want it to happen to the gospel. And I don't care if the, the, the simple orthodoxy comes from the left or the right. You know, I don't want to trade the cross for either of those political platforms. And that's not a judgment on, on, on the politics. It's just I hold the cross in such high esteem in comparison to those things. So that's what I mean in terms of orientation, right? When we talk about politics, we talk about a spectrum, like left to right, as if it's on this sort of horizontal. I'm just saying there's a vertical axis here that matters more. Yeah. And that if you're, you're pursuing that vertical axis with the cross at its apex, and then you look down at that spectrum, you're going to say to yourself, you know, these differences, it, it's not as important. It, it doesn't mean as much as I thought it did. And maybe I could live with people see it a little bit differently than I do. Thank you so much for listening to this 40th episode of The Commentary. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed The Commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.